how-to, where two guys show you how to do it between the two of them. My name is Ari. And I'm Matt. And today we're going to be talking about creating an impression, but today we're going to use a fairly specific example to kind of walk everyone through what it feels like to put an impression together. And this is an impression that both Matt and I have kind of, it's in our orbit. I want to do it as what I like to call a sub-impression, and I'm not sure if you describe it the same way, but they're both a hunter impression is what we're looking towards developing. So we're going to talk about the kinds of things that we look into when developing a new or a sub-impression as a kind of guide to those who may want to use these processes to come up with their own impression of a different or similar type. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess sub-impression is a good way to, way to put it. I just, I sort of look at it as a, just a continuation of my impression. You know, I mean, we can't always be always out on the battlefield doing things. Like, what, what, would, what would my impression have been doing if he wasn't off at war? Well, perhaps, maybe he would have been out hunting. So, and we're lucky that there are a few really good resources out there for researching this sort of medieval hunter impression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you described, you effectively used the same description as to why I like to call it a sub-impression, because I have my primary impression of, of what I, I represent and what my soft skills go to portray, and this is one aspect of what would that impression look like if it was in this context? You know, what would my impression look like if it were in you know, out hunting versus on the battlefield versus hanging around camp? And that's why I like to say sub-impression instead of a new impression, because a lot of people, when they come up with a new impression, they've like jumped to a new interest. Like, oh, I was doing a 14th century knight, but I also have a new impression of a, a low-status low Mercian in the Iron Age. Or, hey, like, you know, I do medieval a lot, but I also have a World War II impression. And so like a whole new impression which doesn't even relate to some of the other things that they already have built up in their repertoire. That's why I like to call it. But continuation of an impression is a really nice way of putting it as well. Yeah, I, th I think both both is a uh, really good way. I, either or is a really good way to uh, to put it. I, it's like we were talking to when we had the other reenactor on a few weeks ago who does the the ancient and he also does the Viking, and he also does, he's working on the 15th century. Those are what I would call new impressions. And you're right, what we're doing is more of, like, like you said, a sub-impression or a continuation of the impression, just not a different, a different part of their lives at a different time. Well, not mm -hmm. a different time as in time. Well, possibly a little bit of a different time, because, you know, if you have a, a, an impression that spans a 10, 15-year timeline, you could, you could definitely have, like, a a young and an old version, I suppose, of your impression, or what, you know, say he goes off to war and your impression ends at Agincourt because, you know, your impression dies on the battlefield. Well, you know, maybe, maybe the last time he had the opportunity to hunt was 1399, and then he goes off to war in 1410. So I suppose there's even wiggle room there. Now, when we're making an impression, I think before we even get into any of the technical details, it, it definitely benefits to talk about why are either of us interested in this impression in the first place? Because how we come to want to make an impression has a huge bearing on what we are going to end up getting out of our impression in the first place. So what attracts you, Matt, to coming up with a hunter version of your impression? So uh, growing up in Maine, by the time this, I'm not sure by the time this episode drops, but by the time right now, as we're recording it, it's, it's currently hunting season. It's currently, currently deer hunting season. And we have hunters that come and hunt our land. Uh, a good a good friend of mine actually just pulled out a small uh, three-point buck. I say small. It was a 140-pound buck that we pulled out of our, out of the lower parts of our land. And we had to, we had to carry up out of a ravine and a, almost a quarter mile up a road until I finally borrowed my neighbor's gator. But anyway, that's a story for a different time. So I grew up around hunting all my life. I'm, I'm I've been hunting myself never with the license to actually do the shooting but just for a tag along i guess you could say as a, as a viewer and it's 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 interesting i've never been a fan of rifle hunting i i understand why people do it and they they enjoy doing it and that's that's great personally myself i'm 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 not not a big fan of rifle hunting 
bow hunting though is interests me a lot and when i walk through our land during the winter or the spring or even now you know in the fall and summer we see signs of deer everywhere I mean, there's so many deer down on our land uh i i found sheds last winter of an 11 point buck and these sheds are these they're huge they're, i mean they've got like a three inch diameter at the base they're, they're, they're some of the biggest antlers i've ever seen on a deer and when we, up here where we are we say deer these are the the white-tailed deer so um they're a little more a little more skittish in maine not not trying to put down any other state but up in maine they're not as many of them and they're a little more skittish. They, they, they like to, they like to run pretty easy. So it's more of a little more of a challenge than down in some of the like Pennsylvania and things like that, where you literally can just walk down your road and there's 20 of them standing there and you can take a shot at them. So I like the idea of the challenge. I like the idea of the bow hunting, but I'm like, you know, if I'm going to bow hunt, I might as well go all out and I might as well medieval hunt. And first I thought that just meant going out in my medieval gear, but then I learned, looking into it, that there are specific rules written to medieval hunting. And specifically to the era that, that Ari and I portray, there's some really good resources and writings available to learn how they actually did it. And that, that's what really excited me about it, is, is I can actually learn how they medieval hunted and, and went out and try to do it. And, and that's sort of like the experimental archaeology, you know, living history thing that really excites me. That's cool. There's a lot of parallels and overlaps between your draws and mine. So I've, I'm also in a, an area that has a strong hunting culture on the borders, borderlands of Kansas and Missouri. Now, we have whitetail as well. All the mule dealers is way out west. I don't even think you're allowed to hunt mule deer, even if you saw one out by us. But what we have is lots of soy and cornfields, so we have a bunch of, like, fat, lazy, happy deer that are not nearly... <laughs> I mean, obviously deer, deer are skittish, but, that you know, I think that our, we have a, a, a different... A definitely a different hunting environment here, and so I have obviously gone hunting the, quote, traditional way, and I have friends who also bow hunt, but they always compound bow hunt. Now, when I started hunting, it was out in California, and it was mostly, like, quail and dove. And because there wasn't there wasn't large game to hunt if you didn't travel for it. It's just the especially down in the Southern California area, it just didn't exist. And I got into archery used through pretty much an interest in medieval times, so to speak. Uh, back when I back when Lord of the Rings and medieval culture were about interchangeable in my knowledge base. And so, you know, when, you th when I thought about archery, I would think about like recurves and longbows. And I never really got into the compound bow shooting in the first place. And then when I got to the point where I was living out here in Kansas after, you know, the army transplanted me and we were out hunting, like the ranges and accuracy and power you can get out of a compound bow at some point, it's like, why don't you just rifle hunt, you know? And out here we have a black powder season and we have a center fire season, we have a bow season. And I've always been vaguely interested in, in running bow season with a primitive bow just out of curiosity. Because, again, if you're going to go if you're gonna go primitive, you may as well go full primitive, right? But when it comes to hunting as a medieval impression, my vague interests in being able to hunt and the fact, you know, actually running down and killing some animal, like, yeah, okay, I'm, it's part of the experience. But what I find really fascinating about it is that if I'm going to do a gentry impression and I'm going to have try to demonstrate what a lesser noble would be like, there's a lot of there's a lot of background information that they would know that will inform my presentations even on subjects that don't directly influence that. And so I really have an interest in learning more about the medieval hunt because that's that was one of the primary recreations of a medieval knight. And so in the same way that I like learning HEMA stuff because it informs my impression and sure a knight was expected to be really good at fighting because otherwise they die, but I don't, I don't focus on like medieval harness fighting to the point where like I need to win tournaments or I need to be the most knowledgeable. I, I can live with a moderate level of knowledge because the idea behind learning 
medieval combat is because that's something my impression should know, but that's not the whole purpose of my impression. And that, so I feel like that same kind of, I feel like there's a level of cultural knowledge that I could get just like a background noise that will improve my ability to portray a knight in any aspect if I have gone and done the knowledge and had the, it's the same thing like there's a, there's a, a lot of farming that even someone who doesn't farm themselves but exists in a in an incredibly agrarian society would know that you're you have huge gaps in your knowledge base if you don't understand agriculture in in the middle ages but you need to understand how a knight would hunt and so i want to go and i want to be able to portray that that aspect of their life also because a hunter's outfit is far more appropriate to going on hikes which i enjoy doing and at some point, uh, I just need to stop wearing like brocade out on in the woods. <laughs> and so a hunting outfit will serve me in my non-hunting pursuits and the hunting experience and the hunting knowledge base will, I feel, create a more robust knowledge base for my general impression as a whole. That's why I went and actually got my bow hunter's license this year, even though I didn't actually go out hunting, is I like hunting in the gear and if i was out in the woods and the game warden pulled me over and says hey you're hiking out in the woods with a bow do you and you know where's your hunting license and i could be like here here it is here's my bow license see everything's fine instead of having to be like i'm actually not hunting i'm just doing this for dress up and the arrows i'm carrying don't have tips or something because they basically like if i was walking out in the during hunting season if you're walking out in the woods with a bow they're gonna be like you're not hunting yeah yeah, sure, buddy. Uh-huh. Here's your fine. The funny Ren, Renfair clothes is a first one. That's a, that's a new one in our book, but it's still an excuse. Yeah, I can see that. That's why I got my bow hunting license for this year. But then actually, you know, getting it, I'm like, well, why not? Maybe next year I'll actually try it. So, and uh, some buddies of mine from out in Buffalo who, who like to do this kind of thing, uh, they're like, you're, you're going to do medieval hunting next year on your land? Do you mind if we come on out and do it? So we're actually planning on setting up like a, medieval deer camp next fall and well that's the thing about maine too and this isn't the same thing for every state you always got to check your own state's hunting requirements whenever you do this of course but maine for bow season regular bow season you're not required to wear orange you can wear whatever you want out into the woods so i can go out in medieval gear and not have to be like well i made this hood out of orange polar fleece so I stand out and I, and I, you know, I'm obeying the laws of the state for hunting. I can go out in, in all my, in all my medieval gear. Now, if I wanted to extend it bow hunting during rifle season, because they do allow that up in my area of Maine, in my zone, as they call it, I, I would have to wear orange while I'm out there. And if I, but during that time, if I had a crossbow, I could hunt with a crossbow because they allow crossbow hunting up here during rifle season. And then, and, and they all have extended seasons and black powder comes at some point, but I don't, I don't really have a, I guess I could go hunting with my 14th century pole cannon. That'd be fun. <laughs> that would be interesting. Now, another thing to note for someone who wants to get into medieval hunting with the express purpose of actually taking game is when you check your local laws, many states, not all, but many states have a, like a humane minimum poundage limit that they expect you to have on your bow. So if you have a, 35 pound stick bow you may not be able to legally hunt with that a at 25 or 30 pounds you're probably not actually going to kill anything which is the reason why they don't want you out there just maiming animals but it may be actually illegal to go out and try and take game with a low poundage bow i think a lot of places have a 55 or 60 pound limit to create a humane killing environment so that's something to check as well, in addition to the, the color coding, because that is a, a major consideration that we have some very unnatural color requirements during a lot of these hunting seasons that you, orange exists, but like hunter orange is not necessarily what you would consider a medieval color, even if you're pushing the whole, hey, we have access to dual tones kind of line of thinking. Oh, so just doing a quick search um, for the main laws, main, it's actually 35 pounds is the oh, minimum is draw weight. Okay. or broadhead arrows perfect uh, there you go it seems I, a little low in, it in does the, seem a little in the reading i have done but i think you'd have to be 
pretty darn pretty near, close. near, pretty close to the deer to, to get yeah. it with a 35 pounder. I and although I have friends who said that they've seen friends of theirs take out a um bull a bull elk with fifty with a fifty five pound bow. So it's like, yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't think I'd want to go. I definitely wouldn't go after a moose with it. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, moose are mean. They'll they'll take you. You got you kill it first or it kills you. Moose are bad. Yeah. Though we don't have moose down this way, unfortunately. Really, the only thing on four legs that you can find in my area is deer. There isn't really anything else. Anybody who hunts moose always, it's just, they always forget just how big a moose is. Yeah, you got to go, if you need a team, if just to be able to carry it out. And that's an interesting point about teams. You said you had some people coming down to hunt with you. Medieval hunting isn't what we think about, like, normally today. Like, we do an individual impression, and we'll go out and do things on our own. Well, a lot of modern hunters will go out and sit in a blind on their own. But medieval hunting, like a lot of medieval life, was a was a communal activity there isn't nearly as much hanging out on your own in the woods so that's actually a really interesting point that you're going to be able to to create that environment where you have other people working with you so when we talk about building this person this extended extension of our persona here ari and i we portray that sort of same time frame era that that late 14th into the, the early mid early 15th century yeah the, the first 10 years of the 15th century i like to consider the extended late 14th yeah <laughs> there's it's it's pretty fluid with with clothing and armor style and things like that so there's not that much it's still like it's henry the fourth there that was like the very like the tail end of the of the 14th century and then he, and he spills over to the 15th century. So yeah, they get connects. I'll, I'll allow it as the name says. I'll allow, I'll allow it. Yeah. Cause I, I, I portray the late 14th century deluxe. There you go. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I'm like early 15th century mid range. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's all good. But yeah, same general time frame, which means that we, we are both sort of looking at the same types of sources to come up with our impressions, the same kind of textbooks, more or less. And there's two sources, really, for this time frame. And they're, one is French, and one is English, lucky enough. So the first one is probably the more famous of the two, just because of the artwork, which is uh, the, my French is horrible, I apologize, but it's the Livre de Chasse, uh, which is also known as the Gaston Phoebus. Okay. And we all know that because of the artwork, the manuscript images uh, uh, showing. It has some of the best depictions of the late 14th century hunters and, and what tools they used and what they wore and things like that. And that was written between sometime between 1387 and 1389 by uh, Gaston III, who is the Count of Foy. He's also known as Phoebus or Bobus, or however you pronounce that. And he dedicated the book to Philip the Bold, Duke of Burgundy. And this was basically became the standard text on medieval hunting for the, for the time. It was wildly sort of publicized as best as they were at the time. But, um, you know, it was reprinted three times in the 16th century. And it was also translated by the other book uh, and turned into the other book, basically, that we, that we follow, which is The Master of Game. Which, yeah, like, you, it, well, I mean, when you say converted, I mean, it's effectively a plagiarism of Le Livre de la Chasse. Some, so. some slight changes and details added. But yeah, it's basically it was Edward Edward of Norwich took the uh, who was the second Duke of York uh, uh, took uh, Liver the Chas and just said this is mine now, and yeah. Translated it into English and said this is this is mine. Yeah, in any other context, you would have considered it a literally you would consider it a translation and not a separate book. More or less. Exactly. There are slight changes, maybe just to sort of change hunting from France to England, but. Yeah, no, it's basically the same. It's basically the same book. 
Uh, and but different artwork. So it is they are both worth looking at at least from a visual perspective because the illuminations are not the same even if the text of the of the one is the is a is a translation of the other. Yeah. And but it shows that the techniques that that uh were in Olivier de Chasse sort of followed through because it was he did this, he translated this Oh man, it was almost 30 years, almost 30 years later that he translated this. So it it's interesting to see that how well uh Gaston Phoebus sort of wrote the book and, and how it did become the standard that it was copied like that, but but things hadn't changed. It wasn't that he kept most of the guidelines and were like, oh, but now instead of doing that, we do this. It it was basically just just the same going through things. Yeah, so these books are really fantastic resources, and not only because of the iconography, but you know, when we break these books down, they were literally treatises on how to hunt. So you you really have, with the exception of not having the small nuanced details that maybe an experienced guy out in the field would be able to impart upon you as a mentor, this is about as close as you can get. This is the this is the fact book of hunting. You know, when we talk about people who are reconstructing medieval harness fighting, they go back to a specific treatise. That's what this is for hunting. It was all, hey, other dumb nobles, you need to read this book so you don't screw up this very important part of being a noble, which is the hunt. Now, a lot of things, though, you got to remember when reading it, it's interesting to know a lot of these things in modern times we cannot put into effect. We, we can't actually try them out. Because especially in deer hunting, it's like we're not allowed to run deer with hounds. That's that's illegal. Don't do that. You'll get in a lot of trouble. Um, you're not allowed to do like fall traps on bears and things like that. You're not allowed to chase the animals into pens and then stab them with spears. Yeah. <laughs> While it's interesting to learn and to look at, only certain things can we actually put into effect. Well, and that we go back to you look up what your poundage is, whether or not you're allowed to spear hunt something is another one of those regulations that we just have to conform to. For instance, I know that we can't do spear hunting here in Kansas. I, I can't remember if we do in Missouri or not. It's close enough that I can get to it, so I should look it up. But there are places in the U.S. where you can spear hunt certain things. Like there are people who have gone out and wanted to, you know, and have done the spear hunting of a boar, but then again, even spear hunting, I suspect they would not allow you to use a sword, which is something that, in the book, it is recommended that one of the things you do is because there's no better analog for fighting a man with a sword than to fight a boar with a sword, more or less, is to actually take game with a your quote sidearm instead of a spear or a bow. And I'm I'm fairly certain that's not something that you're going to get away with pretty much anywhere in the U.S. So that's again, like we said, always always check with your um, local laws, and because even it depends on what zone you're in in your state, the laws can mm-hmm. the laws can change. So yeah, the. Always check. I was just looking quick to see if I could find whether or not Maine allowed spear. I was actually considering when I'm bow hunting, having a spear as my sort of backup. Because you should always have some sort of backup. Because you might not, you might clip the deer and not actually kill it, but you might wound it as enough for it to, um, things like that. It might actually be dead. So you might have to, you might have something else to, to end the, end its life. So I, I don't see, just looking quick, I don't see anything that says anything about spears. <laughs> so probably main, there's like, you want to what? You want to do what? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's probably, I, I just think there's probably, there's, there are so many situations where in we're, what we're doing, like in an attempt to do some really good living history comes to the point where the moment you interact with the government, the, the, the statement of "you want to do what?" I, that's like you should get it. Mean, there should be a T-shirt, and it's like you want to do what? Because there's so many situations in which we 
we ask these off the wall questions that your average your average government clerk just has not prepared to answer. And yeah, I, it's like I was just I was just looking through everything here. It's like prohibited. It's like it it doesn't it 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 doesn't say spears are prohibited, <laughs> but it, again, it just like I was joking with my buddy who got the spike they got the spike horn down the three little three pointer down in our land. But how it's like I don't have a it's like I don't have a hunting license. Really, you know, I got the bow license, but I don't you know I can't shoot anything with the bow. It's like I can't go out with a gun. And so I don't really have license to do that. And I'm like, but you know, I was thinking I could just, you know, wait in a tree with a knife <laughs> and just leap out on it. The deer walks below me, just drop down on it. <laughs> and he's looking at me. He looks at me exactly. <laughs> he looks like he was about to say something. He stopped himself. He's like, well, I mean, licenses are for, for shooting deer. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably he's like probably if some game warden came out and they're like how did you how did you get this deer and you're like oh, I landed on it from the from a tree with a knife they'd be like you know what man just just take it you're just just yeah I keep a tag in my pocket for situations just like this here you go <laughs> <laughs> that's intense but you know deer I mean I guess again this is not necessarily a a podcast on how to hunt necessarily but. I mean, deer can be pretty violent. Like those little hooves are like they're like knives. They can stab you. They can literally stab you with their hooves. So you got to be careful when it comes to hunting game like that in person. I suppose if you mean like you're at arm's reach with animals like that, that can be fairly they can be fairly violent in the preservation of their own life. So, well, it's it's like the the guys who went boar hunting with a spear. One, they're nuts. Lucky they didn't die. Yeah, but uh, you know, one of the guys always has to have a like a high-powered handgun with them at all times, be- because there's a good chance that that boar is going to run up the spear, snap your spear in half, and then come kill you, because boars are like that. Boars are mean, and so uh, uh, there's always has to be somebody there with, with a backup, and that might be something to think about, even if you're deer hunting while, while deer not to be that mean having some sort of backup that you actually know how to use to dispatch the animal if you don't get a killing shot on it you, you need you need to have that yeah you just and that's why some of the things that we can't do that are in the book it's because they're not they're not considered ethically humane by modern sensibilities and so we have to make sure that we are going out there and doing so in a human, you know, doing our hunting in a humane way, which may require making concessions to what we want to try and actually accomplish. Now, we've been talking a lot about like, okay, so we need, you know, do we want to use a bow? Do we want to use a spear? What is our backup? Now that we have a visual reference for the types of hunting activities that we can or legitimately cannot, but we can at least you know, maybe pantomime, we also have some indication of, of what it is people would wear. And so this is where we get into the, the meat and potatoes of making an impression, the visual parts of an impression. So what do we pull from these books that give us an idea of what it should look like to be a hunter? Because though there wasn't uniform, like what we think about in the, the military context, visual expression, as we all know, is an incredibly important part of medieval culture. And that did not stop at the hunt. It, it didn't, exactly. So that's one of the great things about looking at the images in things like Livre de Chasse and The Master of the Game is we do get these great images. But they also have, basically, they lay out what you should wear. And rules like, you know, in the summer and the spring, you hunt. You wear green. You hunt in green because you're stalk. You're effectively stalking, unless you're running the deer with, with dogs, which you can't do nowadays. You have to go stalking. So you want to wear green, so you blend in. Uh, you do see differences. Like sometimes they'll have a red hood. Sometimes they'll be wearing red hose. They may have painted the bow green. Just so everything sort of blends in to make it harder for the for the deer. Camouflage. Yeah, camouflage. It was basically their camouflage. It was their camo. The red 
may have been like if you wear a red hood or, or red hose or something like that, that may have actually been a form of safety uh, because they're still somewhat visible to the fellow hunters. You don't get shot by your fellow hunters, which safety is always, always a good thing to do. Safety is paramount. And of course, when we think about the medieval context of camouflage, what we, we also have to acknowledge that they were doing this camouflage concept based almost entirely off of color. What we don't see is the understanding of pattern interrupt. So modern camouflage, a lot of the, a lot of the form of modern camouflage comes in the, the purpose is to break up the lines of your figure. Uh, because we understand now that most of these ruminants that we hunt can see shapes and movements better than they necessarily see certain colors, which is why we can use things like a bright orange safety color, because it doesn't, doesn't really register as a problem. And so what we don't see is we don't see ghillie suits. We don't see, you know, we will see a little bit of like people moving bushes, which are probably intentionally made to be like kind of blinds conceptually, but we don't see camouflage in the modern, you know, I say the word camouflage and I just want to make sure that we have this asterisk. We don't mean camouflage in the, like the modern hunter where your clothes are patterned to look like trees and sticks. We are mostly looking at a color contrast because, and we know it's specifically camouflage because on the flip side, you, you specified that in spring and summer, you're supposed to wear green because in winter you're expected to wear gray for the same, same general reasons. That's correct. Now, there are some depictions in uh, Livre de Chasse and an older uh, hunting manual, which is, I think this was like from the 13th century, which is the Le, Le Livres du Roi Modus et de la Rienne Ratio. I, and I cannot, I don't know what that, I don't know if I said it right, uh, and I cannot translate it, what it means, but it actually tells you to wear a branch between your teeth to hide your face when you're stalking deer. So basically tie a, cut down a branch and put it, put it up in front of your face. And we see some depictions of that in uh, Livre du Chasse, where there's a, there's an image of a cart being pulled with a hunter in it with a crossbow and the rider of the horse who's pulling the cart and the person sitting in the cart are all wearing green, but they've also got branches tied to the cart and they're wearing it on their, on themselves to make, make them look like some sort of tree and help them blend in. So there is some idea of whether it's just wearing the green, whether it's putting branches on yourself. They had some knowledge of, Hey, if I make myself look like a tree, the deers don't care. Right. Now that, and that's good. But what we don't see is the actual fabric itself being used as a camouflage device is what I wanted to make sure that we posted a flag into and didn't get confused about. Don't. But yeah, you're right. Make a, don't make a coat hardy or, or Joffany's gown out of modern camo. Or, or even like a speculative medieval brocade that is meant to be camo. Like that didn't, that just didn't happen. Yeah. As far as we can tell, with the resources we have available to us. If you have some resources we don't, let us know. Please, yes, we're always, we're always happy to be proved wrong, because that means we're learning something. Absolutely. So, this hunting outfit that you, we were talking about making, we now have evidence that we need to make a distinction between when are we going to go and actually do our impression. Because now we have, we have knowledge that our impression there is a timeliness factor to it. So for, for you, are you aiming to do a spring, summery hunting outfit, a winter one, or both? Because how you dress is going to be affected by the time of year. And, and what you're hunting is going to be affected by the time of year a sure. lot, too. So if you're going out to hunt rabbits, probably doing it in the spring or uh, fall, depending on what your rabbit hunting season is, you could, you know, you're going to want to wear the green deer, depending on where you are. There could be snow. And I know out in Michigan, it's like they've already got snow on the ground. In Colorado, there's already places with snow on the ground. So you could want to go out wearing white if you're allowed to, of course, um, in your bow hunting season. So knowing when you're, what you're hunting, 
when you're hunting, those are important, and those will, will advise how you're going to dress. So have you decided to do both or just one or the other? Right now, I'm only do I'm only setting up to do the fall one to do the, uh-huh. the deer hunting because I'm not I'm not really sure what I'm allowed to hunt in the winter up here because I, I I haven't really looked into it that much. The only thing I know I know you can hunt all year round, and a lot of times even without a license up here is coyote. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know if I want to try to go after coyote in medieval gear because they're <laughs> they're sneaky. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not always they're not usually alone either, so keep that in mind. Exactly. Right. So I'm probably gonna go deer hunting and I'm probably gonna do it in the fall. So that means I wanna wear green. Uh except for maybe something for safety, like a bright colored hat or a bright colored chosses or hose, uh, or a hood or you know, a different colored hood or something like that, just so I have that that one level of safety. Probably gonna go for uh, the the hose is what I'm going for. I'm going to go with like the red or a different bright colored hose because I've already got a green hood that works perfectly. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing we see in these books is that when it comes to stalking, because there's also seems to be uh, like three primary ways of hunting. There's like falconry, which is a completely different conversation entirely, really. And then there's there's the hunting with a a party of hunters where you are going out to chase the game and you are on a horse and they're like, they've, they've gone through the trails and they've, and they're rustling up game for you to go after. So it's this, it's almost like a, uh, more of a game. And then there is the, the stalking style where you're actually sort of creeping up on, on the animal to, to catch it with something, be it bow range or spear range or whatever. And, so the the hunting with packs of dogs and and having people scare game out of it their trails and chasing them down on a horseback is really not the type of hunting that I plan to represent right now because it's not something that I can physically experience. On the other hand, when we're doing the stalking, we see a lot of indication of you know, people in their hosen out in the woods but without shoes on. Do you where is your opinion on that these are hunting hosen with leather soles or just people have taken their shoes off so that they could be sneakier. Where do you sit on that particular speculative spectrum? That's not something that I've actually really thought about, to be perfectly honest. I because mean, I I was gonna wear shoes when I when I went out. I, I don't really understand. I could see going barefoot, maybe in just your stocking feet might make things quieter if they have leather on the bottom i don't understand why they would be any quieter than a leather bottom turn shoe to be perfectly honest in the conversations that i've seen the presumption is that the the leather sole on the bottom of a hosen is would be thinner and more supple than what you'd expect to be able to build a turn shoe out of because there's a there's like a there's a point at which leather can get so thin that you can't really turn a shoe out of it but you could probably fell it down to the bottom of the hoses. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, there's, I think it depends on where you're going to want to go hunting, to be perfectly honest. In my woods, I would probably want to wear shoes. Uh, there's a number of places where it's just sort of mucky, and uh, the idea of wearing shoes seems like a, a good idea to me. There's also a lot of rocks and there's a lot of thorny rose bushes and things like that. And there's depictions of the dismounted riders basically going off into the woods wearing the high buckled boots. And there's a discussion saying, you know, those could have protected them against things like rose bushes and things like that. Especially the deer up here love to hide in that thick, scrubby, pointy bracken like like the big rose bushes and i'm not i'm not going to go in if i get one there i'm not going to go into a rose bush in you know only hosed colored feet uh, covered feet there to pull it out cuz that's going to hurt yeah that would be unpleasant and i have seen the now we've seen in general just r- those taller boots being worn by people on horseback in a way that footmen don't seem to wear knee-high shoes, even though 
a knee-high boot would provide you, as you said, the same level of protection marching through prickly underbrush as much as it would be to protect you from whatever's slapping up the side of your horse as you're driving forward. So, I don't know. I was planning on wearing shoes because, look, the medieval people might be tougher than I am, and I'm a, I can live with that. It doesn't hurt my ego. And I just, that doesn't sound pleasant. It sounds too cold. I mean, if we're going out, deer seasons tend to equate to much colder times of the year. And unless I'm going out in summer, I mean, it's going to be unpleasant to just stand directly on the frigid ground. I don't, I don't want to do that. And spinning back around, you were talking about the red, the red accent. So there's in, in Le Livre de Chasse, there is depictions of people wearing red shoes. And I can't think of anywhere else that I have seen pictures of people wearing red shoes. You don't see red turn shoes out on the battlefield. And a lot of times, even when you see the, the more gentrified outfits of people who are indoors, you see like embroidered slippers and things that aren't actually shoes. They're just, they're, they're softer types of footwear that you would wear inside. But the idea of this red, these red, like red calf high boots uh, that you could wear because they help make sure you don't get shot by your friends. Like that sounds like fun because, and I, I haven't decided whether or not I want to go with just like normal red shoes or maybe like the red boots. Uh, my, my concern is that, and hopefully there might be a just, just enough of a generational gap that I can wear red boots without how I met your mother references, but I'm not entirely certain I can get away with that yet. And not enough people have forgotten. So, but the idea of wearing red shoes, it's the only context I think I could get away with or even enjoy wearing red shoes. And so I'm, since I can only think of this situation where I'd want to, then I should indulge in doing so. So even if there's a, a, a perfectly valid reason not to wear shoes, I have every intention of wearing them simply because I want to wear those red shoes. If I were going to portray a, a higher class, because mine, what I'm putting together is, is sort of, again, that that the working hunter, I guess you could say. I'm the guy that was sent out to, to flush the deer or something like that. If I was going to portray the noble who was dismounting from their horse to go into the woods because the horse couldn't get there or something, then I would probably get the knee high. I'd get the, the high boots and, and wear point. those. But yeah, no, I, I don't know. The idea of wearing just my, my shosses out there seems yeah, it's just cold. It seems cold. And there's, yeah. like, there's, and there's a lot of, it's, it's pretty actually wet down, down there right now. We've had a lot of rain up here this fall. So walking down there right now, my feet would be soaking wet in no time. Yeah, it doesn't so, sound pleasant whatsoever. Yeah, it doesn't sound, sound pleasant I at don't, all. I guess maybe it's just because it's just, there's certain modern sensibilities you have to acknowledge that you're not ever going to get over. But like no one, who goes out in the woods in their socks? Like that's just not a, I don't know, it just doesn't seem right. I don't know. You want ticks? That's how you get ticks. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it's cold enough. See, I, I, ticks are really bad out here in the, in our area. The tucks are, the ticks are just absolutely insane. And that's one of the very, the reasons that I'm discouraged against doing summertime hunting, even if I don't, even if there's no game to hunt. Like, cause I, I keep telling myself, well, it would also be fun because I enjoy hiking to go out and pantomime the motions of hunting even if there aren't, isn't a game to get, because just because you go out to hunt doesn't mean you're going to find something to take down. And so it's perfectly legitimate. It is a legitimate and authentic experience to go out on a hunt and come back with nothing. And, but I just, one, it gets hot. And I don't, uh, it's already, we already do enough stuff where we're wearing wool and armor and it's hot. And then the ticks can be so, so bad and so thick. The last thing I want to do is to be, mucking through that and scrub brush and stuff and just letting them fall all over me with extra folds of fabric for them to hide in and such. I don't know. Uh, fall and winter seems to be where I really want to aim my, my impression, which is why I'm actually not even certain I'm going to go with green. I may actually end up doing a nice heavy woolen coat uh, made of something that's you know gray or white because I don't know if I really want to do much of my hunting experiences in, in the summer. I've actually gone out on a sort of fake winter hunt before and I did it. I just wore my arming jacket, which is you know, that natural linen 
you know, her canvas linen, yeah, that off-white oatmeal kind of color. I had a gray hood that I put on over it, and I, I was good to go. Because I guess if you move often enough, you you work up that sweat and you get nice and toasty. Well, my arming coat is pretty. It's pretty. It's not. It's not thin. I'll tell you that much. No. So, is it built up to be a little padded on its own, like a a proper undergarment? Exactly, and I think I also have have a gray wool blanket that I just threw on over my shoulders and clipped it like a cloak and I was fine. Oh, that's good. Put my hood up, had my I think did I wear my bicocket for that? Yeah, I think I wore a bicocket for that one. There's other depictions in the winter of them wearing different types of hats other than a bicocket. So there's no such hat as not a bicocket. <laughs> <laughs> well you're in luck, Ari, because the bicocket seems to be the hat of the medieval hunter. Well actually I I've, and I've said this in other capacities before, or at least acknowledged this, but wearing of the bicocket, uh, there may have been, it may have been a signal that you were a sportsman. Like, the, the wearing that outside of the hunt was kind of like wearing your camo hoodie to Walmart, I suppose. Like, to just, you know, like, as a virtue signaling of being the type of person that goes hunting uh, for, for a certain period of time. And so... That sort of circles back to if I'm going to wear this bicocket all the time and I'm going to create this subtext that my impression is a sportsman, I should at least have some idea what it means to go and medieval hunt, which is, you know, returns to some of my inspiration to wanting to, to complete this type of outfit. I dare any of our listeners, somebody make a green bicocket and put the mossy oak logo oh no <laughs> oh that i mean i don't know i i feel like it would be it would be worth a photo shoot but i don't know that's that'd be crazy looking but yes <laughs> that way you can virtual say virtue signal that you are both a medieval hunter and a modern a hunter. modern hunter there you go multitasking symbolism <laughs> yeah so even even in a lot of the pictures that show bicockets though not all of them are green they actually tend to be different colors as well a lot of them are green the other accessory you're going to want which is depicted a lot in a lot of these images is the hunting horn and you can actually get these and you can get a cow's horn and try to make it yourself you can find hunting horns on etsy and ebay and things like that you might need to do a little bit of tweaking for the harness of it but they should they're not that easy to, they're not that hard to fiddle with or, or make your own or even find one to buy so but you want to have a hunting horn especially if you're portraying like sort of the leader of the hunt because the hunting horn wasn't just a sound of the to drive the game or to signal the finding of the game or to signal that you found where the game had fa fallen after being shot it was also a tool for them to collect things like the uh the deer scat in to take back to be examined so they could pick which which one the hounds were going to go after and things like that. And there was also a, from what I understand there was possibly even a set of signals that were were like code that you could relay messages in the same way that like a bosun's whistle could be used to relay messages. All I know is I take my horn out there and whenever I, I'm out there blowing this horn all of a sudden you hear my wife yell Gondor calls for aid. <laughs> That's how you know she's a keeper. <laughs> That's fantastic. So we have this idea where we have a green or white, predominantly green or white outfit, though we see a lot of uh, blues. We see a lot of reds, especially in accent colors. We see a lot of, you know, people wearing hats. And what we don't see a lot of, at least in the visual depictions, are people who are out there, like, bedecked in backpacks and festooned with extra belts and weapons and things like that. We seem, they seem to be fairly, dressed fairly light. We don't even see a lot of, we see some, but not even a ton of people wearing their pouches. People seem to, to really be dressed for the occasion, so to speak. They, they're going out there to do this particular activity. And they don't necessarily expect to spend forever out there. And while I know that the hunt can be used to train a young man in bearing of arms and endurance over long periods and sleeping rough, 
it doesn't appear that the average hunt was expected to to take to be a big camping event. That it was more of a it might have been an outing in the same way that a camping event happens where you you have a base camp, but it doesn't look like it was like ultra light camping in where you're expected to weather down every night kind of thing. So that's also something to keep in mind that we don't necessarily need to to burden ourselves with too much extra stuff to make ourselves look huntery. Yeah, that's right. And the pouch is is probably the pouch holding a dagger is probably the only other accessory other than the horn which you see being worn in any regular regularity here. The horn you see much much more often. Well, that's another piece of equipment that you should make sure you're finding a good knife or dagger to carry along with you. Uh, out in the woods, if you do get the kill, you need a good, sharp, stout dagger so you can actually field dress the animal right then and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do see uh, men carrying daggers a lot. You don't see a lot of them carrying swords. Some. some, But even then, you see most people seem to be carrying what they were going to use as their weapon in their hand. And they don't have... We were talking about having spares. It looks like the knife was effectively the spare. The spare. So when you see someone carrying a spear or a javelin, they don't also have a sword on them. They don't also have a bow slung over their back. It's not like a... They're not a D&D character where they've got you know six or seven item slots that are filled up with, with backups they can sort through as they need to. So people tend to appear to have the thing that they plan to use as their primary tool and then their one little backup. So that's another way to inform your impression to decide how is it that you want, what role do you want to portray in the hunting party? Are you going to be carrying your javelin or are you going to be carrying a sword with you? Or are you going to be carrying a bow? Because they don't tend to be carrying all three or even multiples of those. And a lot of times, like, like Ari said, you weren't out there away from civilization all all that much so you know if say they needed a sword they sent somebody to get the sword they didn't carry it with them a lot of the times because you had people effectively being fetching carries for you all day Mm -hmm. yeah so and but the the reason i point that out is that in in lilivra dishes they have a couple images of people that seem to be carrying a bunch of stuff but they are in the minority, and I have seen those in various discussions being used to support wearing all the cool things, all the cool hunter things you can effectively bring with you. And it, it is a spot wherein we are using the exception as the rule, and that is something to keep in mind that we want to, when we can, especially when we are individuals, we want to tend towards portraying the average. Now, when we ha- if we have 17 people who are out at a big hunting event and we want to be able to show the variety, then we definitely want to pull in these exceptions and so that we can show them, but they need to be contrasted with something else, and n- not just in a public impression way. You know, we, we're not only teaching the public about this, but if we're trying to inform ourselves of what is the average hunting experience, we're never going to achieve that by always burdening ourselves with the exceptions to the rule. That's good. That's a great way to look at it. I, I agree with that 100%. Okay. So we talked about the close of the season. We've talked about the different tools uh, that they would have had. Uh, we've talked about safety and checking with your uh, local, local and state laws. So the next part is, so there's some great sort of modern resources out there that we have to look at. We've mentioned one of them a number of times, uh, the Exploring the Medieval Hunt, which is just themedievalhunt.com, is a great resource if you're interested in this kind of thing. It breaks down a lot of stuff. It, it talks about the hunter wearing green. It talks about the books of the hunt. It talks about stuff for gray hunters, the wintertime hunters. They have a really good like winter survival one, which is, it was a resource that we used in our winter survival medieval edition episode so it's definitely something to, to reference and it just has everything it talks about hunting with dogs it talks about basically anything to do to do with hunting 
the other great resource that's out there is a site called it, it was a group that was called St. Hubert's Rangers. And Ari and I were talking about this before we started taping. We don't think that this group is actually quote unquote active anymore as a group. Individuals might be active doing their thing. Uh, I know a number of people who were part of the group, and if they'd like to, they're listening and would like to chime in, I'd, I'd love to hear them talk about their experiences doing it and whether or not the group is still active or not. It would be great to be great to know what's going on because this was a great group that was dedicated to hunting medieval style. Most of them were here in the USA uh, doing this medieval style hunting. And there are a lot of the, these are some of the crazy people I talked about earlier that went boar hunting with spears and, you know, they go out with crossbows and their bows and they actually do all sorts of different game huntings. They do large game hunting. They do small game hunting. They do bird hunting. Some of them have tried falconry. They're really dedicated to getting out there and trying to experience it. And they've got some great resources on their website too. And it's not, we'll, we'll link to it in the, in the show notes because it's not an easy to say website address. It's not catchy. Like just think Hubert Rangers.com. It's like, just click sites. it. <laughs> yeah, it's like sites.google.view. It's like, it's, it's, so we'll, you can also just, if you do a web Google search for St. Hubert's Rangers, it'll bring you to their old site and you can uh, link you to their, their new site. But they've, they were the largest medieval hunting group in the U.S. that I know of. And what was really interesting about their setup is while they did all do things together every once in a while, these people were were far spread across the U.S. A lot of them just went out and did their own things, but they became sort of part of this larger group of like-minded individuals. And yeah, it's just really cool. I, I love, I've always loved what they, what they've been doing. And, and they also have articles that were written by different members but also historical articles and things like that that are on their site that you can read and, and learn more about how to do this and how they went about doing things and then of course in the sca there's a group called the foresters guild and they do while they're not specifically hunting i'm sure some of them do actually go out and have tried hunting in, in a medieval manner they're more of the outdoorsman-y type activity bushcrafting activities i guess you could call it now the skills you the skills you'd need while you're out there before and after the actual hunty killy part and i actually did a, wrote a, a short paper on this it was broken down from as a, a literary analysis of chaucer's yeoman from the canterbury tales because he's described dressed all in green with peacock, fe peacock feathers and carrying his bow and the the point of this there's a point to this story the point is that the the hunting culture and the forester culture is highly integrated they're they're highly entwined together the forester culture did lend itself to the hunting and things like that so they're very very closely connected together in all of that so yeah, definitely things to look up if you want to, to bolster your your knowledge. And of course, we are always happy to see more and more hunter impressions with us. And then you know maybe we'll do a big and do a big uh, hunting meetup sometime and, and go off and, and be able to show off the feel of having a group of large a large group of hunters uh, in one place, which was would be a very a very authentic way of going out for a hunt. If you have a medieval hunter impression, we'd love to see it. Uh, we'd love for you to comment on our when this we get posted to the Facebook group or send us a message and we could share it. Uh, we'd love to see your hunter's impression and talk about or join our discussion on our Facebook page or or send us an audio file telling us about your medieval hunting experience. We'd love to hear it and we'd love to share it here on the podcast. So send that send that audio file in to how to medieval at gmail dot com. That's how to t w o. I'm certain you could probably send it to us through Facebook Messenger too, or or whatever other avenue you have for contacting us, and 
if you want, like you're saying, if you have some pictures of your own impressions, we can always get those up onto the Facebook page and we can share them around through the community tab. Just let us know. We, we want to see what you guys have been inspired to do. And if you don't like hunting for your favorite podcasts on whatever you stream it on, give us five stars on whatever platform you listen to us. Like us, share us, get the word out there. We can all hunt down that evil algorithm and get everybody out there to listen to us. We appreciate your support, and we also really appreciate the support of Paul Butler, who has allowed us to use his music as part of our intro. Go check out what he has at Paul Butler's Medieval Music, linked down in the bio. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, folks. Bye.